Welcome back to Crossing the Jordan, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning back in. And I pray that you are living life filled in the Holy Spirit. And uh, so just this past or last weekend now, June 18th, it was Saturday, June 18th, the eve of Corpus Christi, I was very blessed to be invited to give a talk at St. Alfred's Catholic Church in Taylor, Michigan, Michigan, um, on a talk called Eucharistic Revival, Sacrifice, Presence, and Banquet. So this was a talk that I was invited to give after about 45 minutes of praise and worship. Then I gave my talk and then I had a holy hour and benediction. And um, and I get up there, I bring up my recorder and I have my recorder in hand. I turn it on and then about halfway through my talk, I realize I never hit record. This is not the first time that I've done this. So uh, instead of uh, you know trying to find the recording, which there is a recording out there, it's on YouTube. They had it live on YouTube on their Facebook. So I'll give a link to the YouTube. It's about three hours long. My talk starts at either 50 or 55 minutes. Um, that first 50 minutes or so is praise and worship and just getting settled in for the night. But uh, I figured that I would also give a, uh, just basically re-give my talk here on the podcast. And there will be even more things that I can draw out even a little bit more on, on this because I was somewhat limited on time and trying to keep everybody engaged um, and, and also not over or too long. So we cover a lot of stuff in this. But uh, so this is my talk on the, the Eucharistic revival, sacrifice, presence, and banquet. And why is it called the Eucharistic Revival? Well, in the church right now, we're having a Eucharistic Revival year that we're going to draw attention to the Eucharist, the center and source of our Christian faith. And so, one, but then two, we are also praying for the priesthood here in Detroit. So there's a specific emphasis this year on the Eucharist to redevote our lives to the Eucharist. And one other thing that I would mention is the night or the day after this talk, so Sunday on Corpus Christi, June 19th, there was a Eucharistic miracle that happened in Ireland where the body and blood of Christ in the Eucharist, the bread went away and the, the actually became human uh, flesh from the heart. And so this is my talk on the Eucharist. Thank you, everybody, for joining us tonight as we reflect on this greatest gift of Jesus' presence in the Eucharist. And as a convert, my heart truly does burn for people to fall in love with Jesus in the Eucharist. I spent 25 years of my life without Jesus in the Eucharist. That radically transformed me on several levels and continues to do so every single day that my heart truly burns. And so we're going to cover a lot uh, today in this talk. But Let's begin this talk together as we dive in to this Holy Thursday where Jesus instituted the Holy Eucharist. This is the center part of the entire Gospels and the fulfillment of all that we're going to be talking about tonight, tonight where our talk will be centered on. So this is in Luke 22. This is at the Passover meal on Holy Thursday, the Passover Seder meal that Jesus is celebrating with his apostles. And when the hour came, and remember that the hour always refers to Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus sat at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I shall not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a chalice, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I shall not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in memory of me. 
and likewise the chalice after supper, saying, This chalice which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. End quote. This, what we just heard from Jesus, we just heard priesthood, sacrifice, covenant, communion. And when Jesus says, I have earnestly desired, that Greek word used to earnestly desire can literally be translated as passionately longing for or to set one's heart upon. So this is God from all eternity who took on human flesh, who says that his heart has passionately longed for, to set, his heart was set upon to eat this meal with his apostles and this meal with every single person who would join, join him in this Eucharistic communion. So we will be going pretty deep into scripture in this talk to hear the heart of Jesus ever more clearly. It's a lot, but it's still scratch surface. You can never exhaust Jesus. You can never exhaust the mystery of the Eucharist. And so as an overview to, to the talk, we're going uh, to hear the gospel. We're going to situate the Eucharist and the message of the gospel. Second, we're going to do an overview of the teaching of Jesus in the Eucharist. And we're also going to be hearing Jesus in the New Testament and the early church about how serious this teaching is. And then we're going to go through all of salvation history, and we will see that the Mass, the Eucharist, is central to the entire Bible. And then lastly, we're going to dive into how the Eucharist is the source and summit of a Christian's life. It's the cause and effect. It flows from, our entire lives flow from the Eucharist and back to the Eucharist. And we're going to, uh, this Christian life is about holiness, evangelization, care for the poor, vocations in the priesthood and married life and consecrated life in our families. And then lastly, we're going to pray for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So let's talk about the gospel. So the Eucharist is center of the gospel. It's not an add-on or a nice-to-have, and it's not separated from the message of the gospel. And that is precisely how I viewed it as a Protestant five years ago, that the Catholics had this nice thing that they thought they had, but it's not part of the gospel, and therefore it's an additional thing. And even if it was true, it's an additional thing. Let alone did I believe that it's I, I believe that it was not true in what they taught. But we're going to see that the Eucharist is central to the gospel. So what is the what is the gospel? And the gospel is that you were created out of love and for love to live in communion with God and each other. This God who created everything, who's outside of space and time, who's all eternal and created everything so that it would share in his life, share in his life, that in this universe that is 90 billion light years across and expanding, God created all of this and yet he calls all of his creation good, but you very good because you are meant to live uh, in communion with God and each other and all of creation. But an angel that was created by God, his name is Satan, which means accuser, or devil, the divider, out of envy of God's plan for you, which is to live in glory and to be divinized in our humanity, he came to deceive our human race. He can't destroy God because he's a creature and he can't kill the creator. He can't destroy God and he knows that. So he came to steal, kill, and destroy the image of God that is in us. Through the devil's deception and us being deceived, we were sold under the power of sin and the reign of death. And that reign of sin and death continues today in the destruction that we see in this world. But Jesus came to fight, to dismantle the works of the devil that is sin and death. How did Jesus do it? By using the means of the devil's own deception. He took on, Jesus took on our human flesh to deceive the devil, to lure in the enemy in his humanity, which cloaked his divinity. And through this, as the devil 
attacked the image of God in his humanity through Jesus' divinity. He bound the devil. He set us free. He filled us with his very life and he, his power to make powerless the power of sin. And, uh, and now death no longer has dominion or hold over us. Now we can live in freedom with no fear. So Jesus, and the way that he destroyed the devil, sin, and death, he deceived the deceiver. Well, what was the original deception of the devil? That we can become God without God by eating forbidden fruit. Adam and Eve, they were already made in the image of God. And the devil said, you will become like God if you eat this forbidden fruit. But Adam and Eve, they ate that forbidden fruit, trying to become what they already were. So they're out of performance-based love. They're trying to, they are trying to become what they were. That was the devil's original deception. But now, in the Eucharist, God feeds us with the fruit from the tree of life that restores, redeems, sets us free, and divinizes us into his image that was distorted in us. It's no longer us reaching out to become God, but God reaching down to lift us up into his very divine life. So we see in the gospel that our relationship with God through all of salvation history right from the very beginning was represented and is represented by what we eat. And we even see this in a beautiful parable that Jesus gives us and what all of us use as an image of the gospel, which is the story of the prodigal son. We all know this parable of the prodigal son. And if we recall it again, this is when this son takes all the gifts that his father gave him and he throws it all away through a life of self-destruction in a foreign land. And then he returns home and his father runs to embrace him and restores his dignity and his kingship upon him. But what's the low point for that story of the prodigal son? What is the low point? It was that the son, when he lost everything, it was to the point where he said that he was glad to have eaten the swine's food. His low point was that his dignity was so beaten down that he lost everything that he would have eaten the swine's food. And the swine were pigs, which is a forbidden animal, an unclean animal in the Jewish scriptures. And yet he was among them. And not only that, he would eat what they would eat. That's how glad he was. That's the low point. But what was the high point of the story? It was a feast. It was a joyful celebration in the father's house with the sacrificed calf. He comes home and embraces him, restores his dignity upon him, and then he throws a huge celebration with him that is surrounded and centered upon this sacrificed calf. And so that's the gospel. So now we are going to go into a, uh, an overview of the teaching of the Eucharist. We're going to set the foundation. And I'm going to share a few things that were really helpful for me. So let's first even just talk about location, geographically speaking, of where people are. So God created all of space and time. He is outside of space and time. And therefore, he is not in one place and not in another. He is eternal. And all of creation is, is transient, right? It's passing through time and it had a beginning and it has an end. And so it is dependent upon something, but God is outside of time and is not dependent upon anything. He is perfection itself. He is reality itself. And when we talk about God being in heaven, that is a bad use of words because God is not in heaven. Heaven is in God. Because if God is in heaven but not here, then that doesn't that that means that we're not no longer talking about God. If he's in one place and not in another, he's no longer there. <laughs> we're no longer talking about God. Heaven is in God. So when we talk about heaven, it's the place where God's presence is fully known and his fully and his will is fully realized in us. But there's no place where we can escape God's presence. God is present everywhere, but 
his presence is fully known and his will is fully recognized in heaven. So heaven is in God. And this one God who created everything is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Blessed Trinity. The second person of the Blessed Trinity, who is God himself, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. He is all-powerful, ever-present, eternal, all-knowing. This second person of the Blessed Trinity assumed human flesh. So, I used to think and I used to imagine Jesus, okay, I know that he's God and man. I used to picture his divinity shoved into his humanity. But again, if his divinity is in one place, then we're no longer talking about, and not in another, then we're no longer talking about God. So his divinity, even while he assumed human flesh, when we see Jesus, we see God, but we see his humanity. But his divinity, even while he is here on earth, his divinity remained all present, all powerful, all knowing, holding and willing all of creation in his hands. But his humanity was in one place. It was first created in Mary's womb, and then he walked among his people here in his humanity. And that doesn't make him two separate people. He's not Jesus the human and Jesus the divine. No, he's one person, and that one person is a divine person. But this divine person assumed human flesh. And that humanity was created, died, rose from the dead, and ascended and is enthroned in heaven. Now his humanity is in heaven. And we just went through a a liturgical feasting celebration uh, of this liturgical year, right? So we celebrate Holy Thursday, Good Friday, uh, Holy Saturday, and then Easter. And then we go to the Ascension and Pentecost, right? One of the celebrations that that I don't think we fully understand is the Ascension. It looks like Jesus just left us. But this is such a monumental reality of a Christian life because Jesus, what he did through defeating Satan, sin, and death through his resurrection, his victory is now taken into heaven. So his humanity that he took on our human flesh is now in heaven. And this is so huge because now our humanity is being divinized, being glorified, and being entered into the very life of God. And so we see that Through God's incarnation, the second person of the Blessed Trinity who took on human flesh in Jesus, his incarnation wants to tangibly touch us. He brings us up into heaven. When Jesus walked here on earth, he ate and drank with sinners on earth. But now he eats and drinks with sinners in the throne room of heaven. He does this through the Eucharist. What is the Eucharist? The word is for in Greek is eucharistia, which means thanksgiving. And that comes from when Jesus took bread and, we had, and it says that when he had given thanks. We see this in the, uh, the feeding of the 5,000 and at the Last Supper and what St. Paul says about the Eucharist. When he had given thanks, eucharistia. And the Eucharist, through the power of Jesus' words that he spoke at the Last Supper, through his ordained ministerial priest, the bread and wine are changed into his body, into Jesus' body and blood. There is no more bread. There is no more wine. Only Jesus. But the accidents or the appearance of bread and wine remain. It looks and tastes just like bread and wine. But the, the, the Eucharist is no longer bread and wine. It is only Jesus. And so we worship the Eucharist because it is Jesus himself. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is represented to us in the Eucharist and we are lifted up into his one eternal offering in heaven. And we are not offering a new offering. We don't re-sacrifice or re-crucify Jesus. This is another thing that helped me when I, uh, after I became Catholic is that 
In the Old Testament, in sacrifices, there were two parts of a sacrifice. There was first the death or the slaughtering of the animal, and then the second part was the offering. Jesus, who is the lamb, he died once for all, and he dies no more. He now is living forever in glory and heaven in his humanity. But his offering, that second part of the sacrifice, his offering is eternal. And it's this offering that we offer and enter into. And this is why Jesus says, do this, which literally is translated as offer this, which is a sacrificial term. He offers this, offer this in remembrance of me. And that remembrance is anamnesis, which means to bring present. And we'll talk about that later. So we receive, and when we receive the Eucharist, we receive the full Jesus, not a part of him. He it doesn't matter how large or small the host is. And that is actually the point of the feeding of the 5,000. That miracle was, it, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 was that it was the multiplication of the loaves. It's not new loaves. So it's multiplying the one loaf that they had and they're all participating in the one loaf. This is the same thing with Jesus. There's only one Jesus and we are sharing in that one Jesus that is being multiplied in the Eucharist. And so we receive all of Jesus, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And when we say we receive Jesus, we receive, and even though his sacrifice is represented to us, but that sacrifice is his eternal offering, his victory, his death and resurrection and ascension into heaven is now being presented in heaven for all of eternity. So when we receive, we receive that glorified humanity that of Jesus that is in heaven now. And so now let's look at the seriousness of, of this teaching. We're going to look at the New Testament, Jesus himself, the apostles, and then some early church all about the Eucharist. So let's first look back at the very beginning of Jesus's life because we're going to see throughout this talk that the very beginning often shows the very ending and the purpose of the ending. And so the very beginning of Jesus's life points to the reality of the Eucharist. The birth of Jesus, where did it happen? In Bethlehem, which is house of meat in Aramaic or house of bread in Hebrew. And I can confirm that it means that because my wife is Chaldean. House of meat in Aramaic or house of bread in Hebrew. Jesus was born in a manger, which is a feeding trough. So Jesus literally came in the house of meat and bread to, to, uh, and it was in a feeding trough, which represented that he was going to feed the entire world with his flesh. And that feeding trough also is wood that pointed to the cross. Let's look at when Jesus started his earthly ministry at the age of 30. One of the first times that he goes up to the annual Passover, which is up in Jerusalem at the temple. This was the time, around the same time, a year or two later, he would offer uh, himself in the Eucharist for us. And this is the time of the Passover. And this is what Jesus says. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And they took him so literally that they said, how is this man going to give his flesh for us to eat? (laughs) And this is what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. And we do not hear it in English because it it just keeps getting translated as flesh and to, to eat this flesh. But Jesus, 
as people are getting more and more uncomfortable, he doesn't back down. He actually strengthens the words. And so throughout, towards the end of this saying, he begins to change the word to gnawing, not just chewing, but gnawing, like on a piece of rough meat. He says to gnaw on his flesh. So, and guess what they say right after this? This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? This is a very hard saying and we need God's grace. This is the, there's only two places in the entire gospels where Jesus's own disciples leave or abandon him. One of those places that we all know of is at the cross where his apostles and his disciples abandoned him and denied him. But there's also the second time, which is right here at this teaching of the Eucharist, his own disciples and apostles and his own disciples and followers leave him. And he turns to his apostles. What do you want to leave too? So Jesus is very serious and not giving them an option. What it means to follow Jesus is to accept everything that he teaches, including the Eucharist. And then the feeding of the 5,000 that we talked about before, the feeding of the 5,000 were actually signs of the Eucharist. It is the only miracle outside of the resurrection that's in all four gospels. If we're a Christian, don't we think that the, that the resurrection is pretty important? Yes. <laughs> There's only one other miracle that happens in all four Gospels, which is the feeding of the 5,000, which are the, it's a sign of the Eucharist where his body and blood would be multiplied just as this bread was and that he would be the miraculous bread that feeds us in the desert because guess where they were? In the desert, which was a, and we'll talk about this later on as well, but just was a symbol of what happened in the Old Testament in the Exodus that the people were fed with miraculous bread from heaven in the desert. So Jesus in the desert brings us into, as the good shepherd in Psalm 23, brings his people and he's going to shepherd them and bring them to restful waters and green pastures. And this is in the feeding of the 5,000. These 5,000 people came and sat and sat in on grass in the desert and were to be fed with this bread. And same thing with us, us in the Eucharist, that we are led in green pastures and restful waters in the Eucharist in the desert of the world. The Last Supper, what we read earlier in Luke 22. The Last Supper, this is the only place in the New Testament where the word covenant is used by Jesus. And covenant and the Old Testament was a sacred family bond. It was literally where we get the word new. When we talk about New Testament, we usually are referring to the 27 books of the of the Bible, of the New Testament. But testament first meant covenant because testament comes from the Latin word testamentum. And that uh, was, it's actually covenant. So when we talk about the new covenant, we're talking about the Eucharist. And actually in the early church, this, the New Testament uh, the books of the New Testament were literally called the books of the New Testament or books of the New Covenant because those books were surrounding the New Covenant in the Eucharist. The next thing is that one of the very first things that Jesus did on Sunday, right after he he defeated sin, Satan, sin, and death, on Sunday when he rose from the dead, the first thing he did was celebrate Mass. What do we do at Mass? We hear the word of God. And it says that in Luke 24, when he walked with his two, two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he opened the scriptures to them. And then he broke open those scriptures. He talked about how Jesus fulfills the, all of that was spoke of in the, the book of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms. And what do we do at Mass? We hear a homily to reflect on the Gospels, to reflect in the re, on the scripture readings. And then he, Jesus took them and he went inside and dined with them and he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And it's there in the breaking of the bread that their eyes were opened. 
And so that is exactly what we do in Mass every single day, if you wanted to, was to hear the Word of God, to hear the homily, and to receive the Eucharist, to receive this, uh, this, to have this broken bread which opens our eyes to new life. St. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, The Eucharist is a participation in the body and blood of Christ. And then he goes on to contrast the sacrifice of the Eucharist to the sacrifice of the Jewish priests and sacrifices to demons from the pagans. He even refers to the, the sacrifice of the Eucharist as the table of the Lord. A table of the Lord literally was uh, is, is this image of an altar where sacrifices happened. And so the Christians have a, an altar where an, a, a sacrifice is offered, which is the Eucharist. In the next chapter, St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, St. Paul says, Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. This is something that happened, what everyone thinks that happens at the end of our lives or at the end of time, where we're judged. But St. Paul is saying that we're judged every single time we go and receive the Eucharist. And uh, this is so crucial. Why do, when we, someone comes forward to receive the body and blood of Christ, there has to be belief that we, we believe that it's Jesus's body, blood, soul, and divinity. There's unity in the body of Christ that we're unified with the body of Christ and that we are in a state of grace. If we are not in a state of grace, this is why Jesus gave us this most precious gift of confession that we can know for 100% certainty that we hear the words of absolution, that we are forgiven by Jesus himself and we go and receive the bread of life in the Eucharist. Right after the apostles in the early church, the church fathers, these are people who knew the apostles themselves. They taught that to deny communion in, in the Eucharist was to be out of communion with Jesus in the church. And another, uh, another way to say it is to deny the body of Christ in the Eucharist was to be denied the body of Christ in the church. And then to combat the heresy about the incarnation that God took on human flesh, when people started denying that, what did they point to? They pointed to the Eucharist. They said, look, we all believe that this is, this is God in the flesh, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. And this is, so if we believe that, then God took on human flesh in Jesus. And when you read the early church, it's crazy because the Eucharist was so developed in this teaching was that it seemed to even be more understood and developed than the canon of scripture and the Trinity. That's not to say it by any means because the Trinity and the canon of scripture are from the apostles themselves. So it was already, it was already there, but the understanding and the development of it and the settling of the canon and the understanding of the definition of the Trinity didn't come into the fourth century. So we're talking about the first and second century. This, these are teachings from the people who knew the apostles about the reality of the Eucharist. And then Eucharistic miracles. The first documented Eucharistic miracle, there's hundreds of them now all over the world. They're happening today. The, the first Eucharistic miracle that is documented was in the 700s. So in the 8th century, there was a monk who started to doubt the reality of Jesus present in the Eucharist. And this in Lanciano, Italy, he was at Mass. And after he, was, he started really struggling and doubting all this, he was at Mass. And when he said the words of consecration, there was the, that bread became no longer bread, but it became human flesh. And when they do scientific... Uh, when they do scientific inquiries and they study this thing, not even from a Catholic perspective, from a purely even, it's open for any doctor to look at, all these different Eucharistic miracles, what do they find? They find that this flesh is from a 33-year-old Middle Eastern man from the myocardial tissue of the heart with blood type AB, which is the universal recipient, and this person received 
uh, was ha- was in extreme suffering. His body was in shock. In the tissue, uh, the the white blood cells show that this person is still alive. <laughs> and the, how beautiful this is that uh, in the book of Revelation we see in the into the heavenly uh, worship is that. Who, who's at the center of the worship is the lamb as though slain. And yet he's victorious. He's the king. He's, he's forever lives. And this is the same Jesus that we receive in the Eucharist. A lamb as though slain, but living forevermore. So this offering that he has is eternal. And yet he's living enthroned in heaven forevermore. And what's so beautiful about this image is that Jesus is the head of the church. The church is the body of Christ. Well, what gives life to the entire body? The heart. So when we receive the Eucharist, we are literally receiving the heart of Jesus. We are receiving the heart of God that gives life to all the organs in the body for it to properly function. And we are moved out of love by that love that is given to us in the Holy Eucharist. And this happens at every single Mass. And there's two miracles that happens at every single moment of consecration. The bread and wine are changed into the body and blood of Jesus. And that's a miracle. There is no more bread. There is no more wine. But there's a second miracle, is that the accidents or appearance of bread and wine remain. In Eucharistic miracles that we were just talking about, where there, you can only see uh, the uh, human flesh, is there's actually one miracle that's happening. It's the first miracle that happens at every single Mass, is that the, the bread and wine are changed into the body and blood. But that second miracle of sustaining the appearance, appearance and accidents of bread and wine are actually removed. So there's actually... Two miracles that happen at every single Mass, but only one miracle that happens with Eucharistic miracles that, that we're talking about. And then lastly, down through the centuries, how many martyrs died for their belief in the Eucharist? Whether it's persecution directly for their belief, or uh, martyrdom because they were protecting the Eucharist, and or just martyrdom so that they would be able to go to Mass. They were risking their lives to be caught by people who are persecuting them. And especially here in America, we take the Eucharist so for granted that we should be going, we can be going every single day to adoration, to Mass. And so when we look at the life of the martyrs, we look at the life of Jesus in them, and it was for their love for the Eucharist. And that love, that grace that gave them over to be martyrs, whether that was white martyrdom, which means you didn't die, but like you died to self interiorly, or red martyrdom. They were learning from the Eucharist, and it was their lives were their lives were being strengthened. They were dying to themselves because of the power of the Eucharist, but then their martyrdom flowed back to the Eucharist. And that is how serious this teaching is to Jesus, the apostles, and the early church, and to all of us. Now let's go through salvation history. We already talked about earlier about how our relationship with God was based on what what uh, on what is eaten from the very beginning. So the Eucharist is God's original thought or, and intent before the foundation of the world. And it was the very first thought. So he thought of the end first. So let us, like when we think about, think about your favorite food right now. Is it steak, pizza, is it ice cream? Is it, um, like I put on here, uh, when I, I, like I make some bomb chocolate chip pancakes. But when I think of that, when we think of our favorite food, what are we thinking about? The very first thought is we think about eating it. So we think about the very, we think about the end result. We're thinking about that whole pizza. We're thinking about that whole steak. We're thinking about that whole ice cream, that whole chocolate chip pancake. And then, so that's our very first thought. And then we start to think of the, of the recipes. So then we start getting all the things together. That is the case from all eternity. God's original thought and intention was to be wed to him, wedding himself to humanity through the incarnation. And then salvation history is the recipe that is put together 
um, through salvation history to come to that end result of the incarnation of the Eucharist because God is an intentional lover. And so when we talk about the Old Testament, the book of Hebrews refers to everything that happened in the Old Testament were mere shadows, but the reality, the substance was in Christ. So we hear how St. Augustine talks about it, how is that the, the new is, re, is hidden in the old and the old is revealed and fulfilled in the new. And so uh, this reality of what we're about to go through in all salvation history finds its substance, its reality in Jesus. And so the mass, we're going to talk about the mass first. So let's go back to the very beginning of creation. So God created his very first intention. He created Adam and Eve. And we see here that Adam was actually shown to be a priest in the temple. What does a priest do? A priest offers sacrifice. That's literally what a, the definition of a priest is, is to offer sacrifice. Well, what did, what did Adam have to, have to uh, offer as a sacrifice? Well, uh, we'll see later. But when we get into uh, Moses and the Levitical priesthood and they had the tabernacle and temple, Literally, the words that are described as what the priest did in the temple and the the tabernacle or temple was to till, which means serve, or to keep, which is to guard. Well, that's literally what what Adam says is said to do was that he, that he was to till or to serve or and to keep or to guard the the all of creation. Right, he had dominion over creation, and so. The original temple was the entire universe, the entire cosmos that was in union with God and with all of each and with all of creation together, unified in love. And so he was a priest offering sacrifice to till and to keep the new creation. But after the fall, division occurs in creation, and Adam and Eve now have to uh, quote work to eat their bread. So now they have to work really hard to earn their bread and to get it on their own. And the tree of life that was also at the very beginning in the the garden of Eve, the, there was the the tree of good and of knowledge of good and evil, right? But there was also the tree of life, and it was really that God told them that they could have anything, but this knowledge of tree of this knowledge of good and evil they could not eat from. But temptation falls, and and they uh, they temptation comes and they fall. But there was also that tree of life. And after they fall, it says that the tree of life actually could have restored them. But that tree of life became not accessible. So everything from everything from this new creation after the fall, everything from there, God is restoring it. And so we will keep this in mind as we continue moving thro- for, forward in salvation history. So right after the fall, there's uh, what happens is Cain kills Abel and then Noah and then the flood and all those things, right? Right after that, is a and then we this is still very very early on this is still like middle to beginning beginning middle of genesis there's a mysterious figure named melchizedek and this was actually in the first reading on corpus christi on june 19th if you remember at mass it's from the very it's in the book of genesis and it's so early on that it's even before abraham so melchizedek uh is before abraham this mysterious figure melchizedek melchizedek literally means king of righteousness and he was a king and priest of salem which which later became jerusalem and what does he offer this this priest king melchizedek he offers bread and wine as the sacrifice and so this mysterious figure of melchizedek who who appears to have no beginning who is the king and priest of salem offers bread and wine as the sacrifice and he blesses abraham 
Jesus is the eternal one who has no beginning, and yet he is the king and priest of Jerusalem, and he offers himself under the appearance of bread and wine as the sacrifice that is literally the one who fulfills the promise to Abraham to have many descendants. <laughs> so Melchizedek blesses Abraham, who then becomes the father in faith, and in, through faith and in the Eucharist in Jesus, through the offering of him, he is fulfilling that promise to Abraham to, to have children of God incorporated into the very body of Christ. Right after Melchizedek, we hear of Abraham. Abraham. Abraham is the story, the primary story of Abraham is that he goes and out of obedience to God is about to offer his son Isaac, his firstborn son Isaac. And what's really beautiful about this too, later on in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, it says that Abraham was about to sacrifice uh, Isaac out of obedience to God because he believed in the resurrection. He believed in the resurrection. Anyhow, that was a sidestep. But he was about to offer out of obedience his only begotten son, his beloved firstborn child, Isaac. And on the way up, Isaac asks Abraham as his father, Father, where is the lamb? And Abraham's response to Isaac is that God will provide himself the lamb, my son. So Abraham says that God himself will provide the lamb. And right when he, when Abraham, he has the fire and he has the wood and he binds Jesus. And this is a symbol of Jesus, the son, who is on the wood of the cross, offering himself up to the father. Um, what happens? An angel of God comes and stops Abraham. And then what has happened? Instead of offering a lamb, then God gives Abraham a ram a totally different animal in this bush to offer as the sacrifice. And so that this 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 uh, lamb that Abraham himself says that God will provide is not provided here. And this is the significance of when we hear later on in the gospel, in the very uh, first part, first chapter, I believe, first or second chapter of John, where John the Baptist is on the scene and he looks at Jesus when he sees him and he says, behold, the lamb of God. Why? Because this is, the lamb that God himself would provide. Jesus is the promised lamb. And we will further hear the significance of this lamb in a little bit. So right after Abraham, Abraham has Isaac and then Isaac has Jacob and Jacob later becomes known as Israel. Well, Israel or Jacob became the father of 12 sons. It's the 12 sons or the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, one of his sons, the second to youngest, I believe, his name is Joseph. Joseph, if everybody remembers this story, his brothers, out of envy for him, sell him into slavery to the Egyptians. So now Joseph is sold into Egypt by his own brothers. But then Joseph becomes in Egypt in a position of power over the entire world at that time. When a famine struck the entire earth, he was the keeper of the bread to feed the entire world. And later on, his family comes Israel comes, his, his, his other brothers who he, that, who denied him and sold him into slavery. Now he is feeding this bread um, in this place of famine to his own family and to the entire world for their temporal salvation, right? But Jesus, who was sold by us, his siblings, he took on human flesh, he became our brother. We sold him, we sold our brother into, into that reality, into slavery, and yet Jesus then becomes in a position of power. He is king over the entire world. And in that position of, of power, what does Jesus do? He feeds the entire world with himself and the Eucharist and his own family who then, who once betrayed him, 
now he's feeding us with the bread of life in this desert place, in this this world that has a great famine caused from sin and death and destruction is now being filled by the Eucharist, the King, in this eternal high, high pr- place feeds the, the us as his family and the world for its salvation. And then right after that, right after this beautiful event that Joseph has now restored his family and Jacob, who is now Israel, goes to Egypt. And now the Israelites are in Egypt for 430 years. While they were there, the Egyptians started to not like these Jewish people and the Egyptians enslaved the Jewish people. This is when God raises up Moses. Moses, the very central part of the Jewish faith, is this central event of the Exodus. It's the essential event of the entire Israelite history. So the Israel Israelites become enslaved in Egypt, right? And then God, through Moses, takes the Israelites out of slavery and brings them out into the desert for what? For freedom and to have right worship. When they were, when Moses was pleading for Pharaoh to let the Israelites go, he says, though, that we may offer sacrifice to our God, to give, offer worship, to offer sacrifice to God that God wants for his people. And that is what they are freed. They're freed from slavery in order to go out into the desert and to offer right praise, right, right sacrifice, right worship to the God who created them. And in order to get out of that slavery, what happened? What ultimately let the Israelites go? It was the very first Passover. It was the very first Passover. Moses gave them, told all of the Israelites to sacrifice a lamb and using a hyssop branch, wipe the door, wipe the doorposts of their houses with this blood of the lamb. And then all of Israel would be saved through that blood of the lamb. And all the other firstborns of Israel would be struck down. And that is ultimately what got them to be free out of Egypt and then go over to across the Red Sea and into freedom. So we see this very first Passover was celebrated before they were actually freed. Well, what does Jesus do? He celebrates his first Passover on Holy Thursday. This is before his death and resurrection. So he celebrates the first Passover before the victory, just as the Israelites celebrated the first Passover before their freedom out of slavery in Egypt. Right after this first Passover, they, then they crossed the Red Sea. And 1 Corinthians 10 actually refers to being baptized into Moses through here. Just now, we are baptized into Jesus through this freedom of from sin and slavery and death to Satan to this freedom of crossing the Red Sea to be free to live in union with God and intimacy. So right after this crossing of the Red Sea, what does Moses do again? He institutes the annual Passover meal. So this is why the Jewish people now every single year from this from here on out they uh, reinstitute this Passover this Passover meal. Jesus also right after he defeats sin Satan and death he too celebrated the Passover meal right away on the road to Emmaus that very first Sunday they rose from the dead. So just as Moses celebrated the Passover before the, the before the victory and then they celebrated the Passover again right after being freed from slavery in Egypt. So too, Jesus celebrated the first Passover before the victory. And now after his death and resurrection, he celebrates and institutes the Passover um, again after the victory. So the Israelite people are now in the desert after crossing the Red Sea and freed from their, their slavery and oppression in Egypt. They're crossing the desert. And what does God give them? Manna. Manna from heaven. Manna literally means what is it? There's this miraculous bread that showed up 
in the desert for the Israelites to be fed from this miraculous bread from heaven that God gave them. And how did it appear? Every morning there would be dew fall on the grass uh, on this area and manna would come. And so if you ever wondered why at Mass when the priest places his hands over the gifts of the bread and wine before the, insti- uh, before the institution, he says that your spirit may come upon them like the dewfall. This is why. Because the Israelites in the, ma- in the wilderness, they had this manna that showed up after the dewfall. And here, Jesus is about to feed us with his body and blood, which is, the, which is the bread of eternal life. And we ask God to bring his spirit upon them like the dewfall. Jesus, when he teaches us the Our Father, and there's a sentence, there's a phrase right in the middle of the Our Father that says, give us this day our daily bread. The very first, the, the beginning, the actual translation of that could also be said as, give us this day our super substantial bread our super substantial bread. And a Jewish person hearing that would we would would be reminded of the miraculous bread that came down from heaven for the Israelites in the wilderness, known as the manna. So this super substantial bread of the Eucharist is fulfilling and realizing the reality of what the shadow of the manna in the Old Testament did. And then after the manna, Moses enters into a covenant with God and all of Israel. And here, uh, the, Moses goes uh, offers sacrifice of the lamb, and then he, he takes blood and sprinkles it on the people, and then he sprinkles it on the altar. And he says, Behold, the blood of the covenant. And then right after this, Moses and the priests go up to the mountain, and it says, They ate, drank, and beheld the face of God. So Jesus nearly verbatim says what Moses says. When, when Moses said, behold, the blood of the covenant, now Jesus here says, his blood is the blood of the covenant. This is my blood, the new covenant. And it's here where we, in this Eucharist, where we are in intimacy with Jesus. And in the Eucharist, we eat, drink, and behold the face of God. And all of these events that took place during the Exodus happened in the desert. The true desert is this world that is having is under dominion of Satan, of sin and death. This is the true desert. And yet it's precisely here that God will fill us with the bread from heaven and manna. He gives us the new covenant and we are beholding the face of God in intimacy. Right after this covenant, then in the very next chapter in Exodus 25, this is when God instructs Moses to build a tabernacle, which was a mobile temple. It was a moving temple. And they had the Levitical priests that would have all these different sacrifices and all these holy objects in the tabernacle. So this moving tabernacle where sacrifices were offered by the priests for the people. And through this, after, after Moses, then the Israelite people wants a king. David is enthroned as king of over Israel. And what does he do? He conquers Jerusalem. He conquers Jerusalem, this this city of peace, right, where Melchizedek was was once. And David even offered bread and wine. Um, But his son, uh, when David conquers Jerusalem, he doesn't build the temple. Guess who does? His son, Solomon. Jesus is referred to as the son of David, just as as, uh, Solomon, David's son, he builds the temple, the huge, massive temple, the center of all of Israelite life. It's there that he builds the temple. It's no longer moving, a moving tabernacle. It's a temple in one place in Jerusalem where all of these sacrifices were now offered in this holy place in the temple. Well, Jesus is the son of David. 
His body is the true temple, and it is he that offers the perfect sacrifice. And one more depth to Jesus being the true temple is that uh, I, well, as I'm recording this, it's the it was just yesterday, it was the Feast of the Sacred Heart, and today is the Feast of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, but the Sacred Heart of Jesus uh, was yesterday. So Jesus as the true temple. So in the in the Old Testament and all the way up through Jesus' day, the temple was the place of sacrifices. So it was the one place you could only offer all your sacrifices in one place, which is the temple. Well, in that temple at the altar where all the sacrifices would happen, there would be a like a system to drain all the blood out to the east side of the temple. And what would be used for that would be would be the the would be water. So on the east side of the temple, there would be blood and water that ran out the side of the temple and outside the city. Um, and Jesus, when he is crucified and he dies, it says that they pierced his heart with a lance. And if you ever are wonder why his it, it always shows his the mark of the his heart piercing on the crucifix is on his right side, even though your heart is on the left side is because, well, one, that medically is possible. His heart was so enlarged from the trauma um, that his heart could have been pierced from the right side. But also is because this right side is typically referred to as like the east. Well, Jesus, the true temple, is now his, and when he's, his heart is pierced, it's blood and water that gush forth from his side, right? That the Gospel of John says. And his body, the true temple. Well, in the old temple, where would the blood and water come from? It was the altar that rushed out from the side of the temple. Well, Jesus, his body is the temple. Well, where is his, where is that new altar? It's his sacred heart where blood and water gush forth outside of Jerusalem. And this is a fulfillment of the vision of Ezekiel that he saw this water running out from the east side of the temple and it would come out and give life to the Dead Sea. Well, the Dead Sea, no, nothing can live in it. Jesus he comes into this place where nobody is spiritually alive and he gives life to us in the midst of that through the blood and water that gush forth from his sacred heart outside of his true body, the temple, his, the true temple of his body to give life to all of us. And so these events that we just talked about of, of all of creation and then Melchizedek and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, Joseph, and then all of Israel and then Moses and the Exodus all of these events were central to the life of Israel. And then after this, all the prophets, when they when they prophesied about the Messiah, they actually used what was done in the past to prophesy about what would happen in the future. So God was going to restore all of these things and fulfill all of them. So when they prophesied about the Messiah, they prophesied that he would be a new Moses, there would be a new Exodus, that he would be a there would be a new king, there would be a, a new king like David. There would be a new temple like Solomon built. There would be a new sacrifice and a new covenant. And one of the central events that we talked about was the temple, right, that Solomon built. Well, what would happen in that temple were many sacrifices. There were a ton of different sacrifices. And these, are again, are, remember, are all mere shadows. These were signs that didn't actually have a reality to them. These were many. So as a Jewish person, you could offer many sacrifices, but it could only be done in one place in Jerusalem, right? Well, listen to one of the last prophets of the Old Testament, which is Malachi. In Malachi 1.11, he prophesies that there will be one holy sacrifice that will be offered in many places. So a Jewish person, this is, this is actually the complete opposite of what they know. They know of many sacrifices that are offered in one designated place that God has designated, is Jerusalem in the temple 
but I could offer many sacrifices there. Malachi says that's going to be reversed. There's going to be one sacrifice offered in many places, one holy, perfect sacrifice in many places. And this is fulfilled in the Eucharist. Think about in John 4, when Jesus is talking to the woman at, of, Samar- of Samaria. He's talking to the Samaritan woman at the, the, the well, right? So the Samaritans, and there's so much going on in the scripture, but specifically for this talk, the Samaritans, they worshiped, they sacrificed on Mount Gerizim. So Samaritans were Jewish people who were mixed with paganism. So, but the Jews, the south, the southern uh, southern part of Israel, they, the Jews worshipped in Jerusalem. They offered sacrifice in Jerusalem. So, worship. They all of uh, Israel. They believed that they could worship anywhere. But the what the the worship that God asked for were sacrifices in one place. So the Jews sacrificed, which is the perfect worship in Jerusalem, and then the uh, Samaritans they offered sacrifice in Mount Gerizim. So specifically, when Jesus and this woman of Samaria are talking about, when they're talking about worship, they're talking about Mount Gerizim in Jerusalem, and Jesus even acknowledges that salvation is from the Jews, and it's really Jerusalem is the right place to worship at that time, right? But what they're actually talking about isn't just a mere worship. They're talking about sacrifice. Where is the proper, proper place to sacrifice? Jews say Jerusalem, uh, Samaritans say Mount Gerizim. What's Jesus' response? The time is now here where true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. So precisely in the place where they're talking about sacrifices, about worship and sacrifice, he says that there will be true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. It's not going to be, he says that it's no longer going to be in Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem. It's going to be everywhere and true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. And this is a reference to the Eucharist and is fulfilling Malachi 1.11. There will be one holy sacrifice offered in many places. When we hear uh, Jesus say that true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth, typically we hear spirit as meaning void of physical things. But spirit doesn't mean non-physical, right? Even think of like St. Paul in Romans 12. When he tells us, he says, offer your body, which is a physical reality, your spiritual worship. He says your body is spiritual worship. So does that mean our bodies don't exist anymore? No, he's actually saying your physical being is now going to be spirit-filled. And why? He's learning from the Eucharist because Jesus became physical so that the physical would become divinized. So Jesus' physical presence in the Eucharist is the perfect spiritual worship that we participate in. And so this is the true worship of the, the, the Eucharist is the fulfillment of Malachi 1.11. There will be one holy sacrifice offered in many places. And this is the true worship that true worshipers will, will have in spirit and in truth. And now with that Old Covenant, that Old Testament reality of sacrifice and communion being intimately woven together and fulfilled in the Eucharist, I would like to take another second look at another thing that we already talked about briefly. And when we were talking about Moses, he, he instituted the God through Moses, instituted the Passover when they were in Egypt to free them from Egypt and bring them out into the, the, prom, into the desert to go to the promised land. And then God, and then God through Moses again institutes the Passover meal after they come out of Egypt, cross the Red Sea, they institute the Passover again. And this would be celebrated once a year 
by each family. And so annually, they go to Jerusalem, offer sacrifice to the lamb. They would bring that lamb back and they would have communion of this Passover Seder meal. Each family would, would do this. And why would they do it? To relive God's saving action from slavery in Egypt. So when they would do this, they would the, the head of the household would actually read the, the, re, the stories of the Exodus and they would read it in the first person. Like God did this for me and you. We, they are representing, they are reliving God's saving action from slavery in Egypt. And when Jesus comes to that time in Holy Thursday in the upper room, this is the meal that he's celebrating, the Passover Seder meal. And at this Passover Seder meal, there's three key elements of this meal that I would like to hit on. One is that they would have the sacrificed lamb that they had to eat. And then there would be unleavened bread. And there would be four chalices or cups of wine. Look at, Now let's look at Jesus' Last Supper meal. At his meal, there's something very, very much missing from the Gospels. There was no lamb. Why? Because Jesus is the lamb. When he took the, the unleavened bread, what did he say about it? This is my body. When he took the, the cup of wine, the chalice, and it was specific, specifically the third of the fourth cup that we'll talk about here in a second, he says, this is my blood of the covenant. So they would have these four different cups of wine and in between each cup, they would have certain parts of the ritual and they would continue going until the fourth cup. And the fourth cup, the fourth cup was called the cup of consummation. The third cup was called the cup of blessing. And this is what St. Paul uh, refers to in 1 Corinthians when he says, this cup of blessing, which we bless, is it not a participation in the body and blood of Christ? And so he's talking about the Eucharist in 1 Corinthians 10, and he refers to it as the cup of blessing, which is the third cup. And this is the the cup that Jesus says, this is my blood. So these, these four cups, when Jesus takes this third cup and he says, the cup of blessing, uh, this is the blood of the covenant. And he, so he's referring again back to uh, what Moses said. This is the blood of the covenant. He says, this is my blood in the covenant. Now Jesus says, Jesus says that he will not drink of, of this again until the kingdom of God is fulfilled or consummated. And then it says that they went out to the Mount of Olives and they sang a hymn. And this would be the great Hallel hymn from the Psalms that they would have sang. Any Jewish person would be like, they didn't finish the meal. This is a huge issue. <laughs> they just finished the third cup. They sing a hymn. But where's the fourth cup? The fourth cup is the climax. You're missing the biggest part, the most important part, the cup of consummation. You're missing it. But Jesus is not missing it. He is fulfilling this fourth cup. So this reality of the cup becomes very important, right? So we're missing the fourth cup now. But he then he goes out to the Mount of Olives. He goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's where he prays. Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will. So we hear Jesus referring to uh, this cup in the garden. And then on the cross, what does he say? I thirst. And then John interprets that to, to, and he says, so that the scriptures might be fulfilled because Jesus is out now at this place to fulfill everything. I thirst. And there's only one place in the Gospels, out of the four Gospels, there's one place where it actually does say Jesus drank the wine, which is in the Gospel of John. And he drank it. And he says, it is consummated. We typically hear the translation, it is finished, but it could also be translated, it is consummated. He drank the cup. And this fourth cup of the Eucharist is now fulfilled. The fourth cup of the Passover Seder meal is now fulfilled with Jesus on the cross. And this is precisely where, when he said earlier that 
the kingdom of God will not come and he will not drink of the fruit of the vine. He will not do this again. He will not drink it again until the kingdom of God comes. It's here at the cross where then he drinks it and it is consummated. It's because here at the cross, God and humanity are now wed together. It is consummated. The wedding of the bridegroom of God and his church have begun. And so he drinks it and he fulfills the Eucharist. When Jesus died, the temple curtain of the Holy of Holies was torn in two. And a lot of people think like, well, now it's torn in two, so now God's presence is everywhere. Nope, God is always present, but that was the particular place where uh, sacrifice and intimate communion could happen. And it was this, this sacred place of the Holy of Holies, and only the high priest could go in it once a year. And, but this tearing of top to bottom of the temple, it was revealing a new priesthood, a new sacrifice, a new covenant in real presence. Jesus is the real presence. In the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, in Hebrews 10, it says this, Now we enter the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way which he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. So the book of Hebrews interprets the Eucharist, Jesus' human flesh. Now he is the new high priest. He is in the Holy of Holies. And we enter through the Holy of Holies altogether through the Eucharist through Jesus. This is a new priesthood, new sacrifice, new covenant, and real presence of Jesus. And this Passover Seder meal is what St. Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians 5 when he says, For Christ our Paschal Lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast. So we celebrate, we continue the feast, not with the old covenant reality of all these different sacrifices. We enter into this new one holy sacrifice offered in many places with Christ as our new Pasch- as our Paschal Lamb that is offered for the life of the world. And it's this new Christian fulfilled Passover Seder meal. And that is the reality of the Mass. But it goes deeper than that. The Eucharist restores all of creation. We participate in the new creation. We're in communion with all the angels, all the saints, and all of our family in purgatory and in heaven. We're in communion. We're in this new cosmos. We're in this new reality of the new creation in Jesus in the Eucharist. We see in the book of Revelation this heavenly worship of all the angels, these priests, martyrs, the church, surrounding the throne of the Lamb. And yet, that is not far off from us because in the mass we are lifted up into that reality this is the book in chapter 12 of the letter to the hebrews this is the reality of the mass he's writing to christians here on earth right now and he's talking about the eucharist he says but you you have come to mount zion which was the the place of sacrifice and covenant and to the city of the living god the heavenly jerusalem into innumerable angels and feastal gathering into the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven into a judge who is God of all, into the spirits of just men made perfect, into Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. So this is the reality of the Eucharist. We are surrounded by angels and saints and all of our family in this Eucharistic uh, mediation of Jesus in the new covenant. And uh, and everything is restored. So we are entering into this, this new creation, the heavenly worship that we enter into uh, through the Eucharist, even here on earth. So we're literally at mass, we are experiencing heaven on earth. Well, what about adoration? Adoration, we adore Jesus in the Eucharist. What happens during that time? So now let's go back again to one of the most holy, one of the holiest objects in the temple of Jerusalem was known as the bread of presence or the bread of face. So 
This was one of the most sacred objects in the tabernacle, tabernacle or temple that the Levitical priest would serve. So this would be just common, common bread that could be used for anything. But when they would offer it in sacrifice, it was no longer common bread. It was actually a, a sacred bread that then they would place on the golden table in the temple. And they believed that it would have miraculous properties to it. So in what way, though, did this bread of the presence become so sacred um, to the Israelite people? Well, in one way was that uh, the Jewish people, they would go up to Jerusalem to the temple three times a year to keep the feasts of Passover that we talked about, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And at each of these three feasts, three times a year, these the priests of the temple would actually remove the bread of the presence from, from that holy place in the temple or the, of the temple so that all the people, all the Jewish people that were traveling could actually see what was behind the veil. And so the priest would lift up the golden table that had the bread of the presence and the priest would say to the people, Behold, God's love for you. So they would lift up this golden table with the bread of the presence and all the people could see it. And it says, behold, God's love for you. Why? Because to the Jewish people, that that holy bread, that bread of presence or the bread of face was a sign of God's covenant with them and the hope to see God's face someday. So that bread was sacred bread, but they were uh, holding on to the reality of God's covenant that he had with his people, but also that someday they would actually see God's face. Well, in the Eucharist, when Jesus, in ador- when we go to adoration, when he's up, held up high in, the, in a monstrance, God himself is saying, behold, my love for you. Because not only is it a sign of the covenant, it is the covenant. And not only are we seeing just a, a hope to see God's face someday, but we are actually seeing God's face. Jesus is the new bread of presence and he is the new bread of face of God. And so this should change the way that we come to Jesus in adoration because uh, that place was, the, the temple was just a mere shadow of the things to come in Jesus. And if people would be in awe of this bread of the presence, how much more should we be when Jesus literally is God from God who is totally present to us in his reality right in front of us in the Eucharist? We should be on our face in front of the covenant. And this presence that flows from the Eucharist, this presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, flows everything in the Christian life. Our holiness, evangelization, our care for the poor, and vocations. It is The Eucharist is our cause and effect of our unity, faith, hope, and our love, and our mission. We flow, all of, the, all of our missions flow from the Eucharist, only to return back to the Eucharist. It's just like St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, that when he talks about the Eucharist is unity. He says that there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So we are all one in Jesus to move in mission and we return back to Jesus. So holiness. And we already referred to how in all of, from the very beginning, our relationship with God was based and represented by what we eat. And what we eat and is first before what we eat, there's a first, there's first a passion, right? So we can talk about what do you hunger for? What is, what do you, what is your passion? What are your passions, your desires? What do you hunger for, right? So what do we hunger for? What are our passions? What do we eat? So physical eating throughout scripture are symbolic for passions of our broken humanity versus passions of God. So what does our humanity want? Um, Adam and Eve, they ate the forbidden fruit, right? 
Esau, who was the son of Isaac, from the, he, he was actually the firstborn of Isaac, and he had the birthright. But guess what? He settled for a cup of stew, and he sold his birthright to Jacob, who would later become Israel and inherit the promise. <laughs> and so he literally was, he was selling himself short. He ate food beneath his dignity just to sell himself away, to sell his birthright away. So again, just like Ad, he was repeating what Adam and Eve did, they ate the forbidden fruit that sold their, 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 uh, their their firstborn right of God. And same thing that Esau did here. The Israelites, what did they do? They were eating in slavery in Egypt and they come out and they're fed with this miraculous bread from heaven. But what do they do? They complain against Moses and the priest and all about the manna. They were so frustrated about the manna from heaven. They didn't want what God was giving them. They wanted the other food that, that they had in slavery in Egypt instead. We do the same thing. God has freed us from sin and Satan and death. And yet sometimes we, our passions, our desires still long for those things of, this, of sin, those things of our broken humanity of the flesh. So we can desire or hunger for those broken things that do not satisfy or fulfill. We'd rather be in slavery in Egypt to be, uh, be eating off of this, these broken passions to slavery. And in this same way, when, uh, when the Israelites were complaining against Moses and the priests and the manna from heaven, these, what God was giving them, it's, that they were described as murmuring. Their complaining was described as murmuring. So Jesus in John 6, this is where Jesus again tells us that he is the true bread from heaven. That he says, your 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 ancestors ate the bread in the wilderness and they died, but he who eats this bread will live forever. So he's referring to himself as the new manna. And people are complaining. They're like about this teaching. They're like, how, what is this man even talking about? How can he give us flesh? How can he himself be the bread from heaven? Who is this man? And what does Jesus say? Do not murmur. So people were complaining, rejecting the gift of God in the Eucharist, just as the Israelites complained and rejected the manna in the wilderness. So do not reject the greatest gift that God is giving us in the Eucharist. We do not murmur. We should not murmur. Mass is boring. I didn't get nothing out of mass. What is even going on? And we should all have, uh, we should all be diving deeper into, to, to better understand, of course. But do not murmur, do not complain, because when we complain against God and against Jesus about this Eucharist, and we're just like, I want to live how I want to live, we continue to hunger and our, our flesh is inflamed with passion to go back into slavery to sin and Satan and death. But Jesus, we do not murmur. We love your gift, Jesus. We love your gift in the Eucharist. So in this new Exodus that Jesus came to save us from, not of political oppression from Pharaoh, just like in the Old Testament, but he actually came to set us free from the oppression of sin and death. But we too can murmur, we can complain, and our passions can desire things that are not of God. And St. Paul actually refers to this when we desire things that are not of God. He refers to this as the God of our bellies the God of our bellies, which literally means like the God of our passions. Like we're hungry for something, right? And a lot of times we're hungry and we want to eat things that are not from God. So this holiness, God feeds us in the Eucharist to increase our holiness, to desire God. So all sin follows the same pattern of the very first sin of Adam and Eve. So Adam and Eve, that was the original sin. But after that, no sin was original, is original anymore. The Eucharist is the antidote to sin. So think about 
uh, at the original fall, the original fall it was the, the original sin, right? And when I say there's no more original sin or sin is no more original, sin can manifest itself in new and different ways. But the underlying cause and effect of it all comes from the same things that happened at the very first fall of Adam and Eve. St. John actually picks up on this. So the original fall, Adam and Eve, they saw that the fruit was good for pleasure. St. John refers to that as lust of the flesh, which was in a disordered pleasure. So they wanted the, fr- the fruit that was good for pleasure. St. John uh, points out that when uh, Adam and Eve, they saw that the fruit was a delight to the eyes. He calls it the lust of the eyes, which is a disordered possession. They wanted to possess something for their own. They wanted to control it. And then the pride of life, this third fall, uh, this pride of life. They desi- it, the, Adam, it says that Adam and Eve, this fruit, it is, they had a desire to make one wise. So when they ate that forbidden fruit, it says that their eyes were opened to sin and death and slavery. But what was that fruit? A lot of people picture Adam and Eve eating the apple. Well, it never says anything about, about an apple. And actually, there's a very good reason to believe that that very first fruit was a fig tree. And why is that? Because, well, what did they cover themselves up with afterwards when they saw themselves naked and they were sh- filled with shame? They could no longer look at each other with purity, but they looked at each other with lust and shame and guilt. And they were divided just as Satan wanted to do with them. They covered themselves with fig leaves. With They're covering themselves in the very same thing that they just fell from, right? So it was this fig tree. And this is why Jesus curses curses the fig tree as he entered Jerusalem. So he entered Jerusalem and he says, he curses the fig tree and he says, may nobody ever eat of you again. Why? Because that physical reality of the fig tree uh, at one point in time was at, uh, literally caused this spiritual death to Adam and Eve and to all of humanity. And so this eating, this eating our desires and passions represented our relate represents and represented our relationship with God. And so this physical reality also caused a spiritual reality. So we all battled the exact same temptations of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had a lust of the flesh for the food that was good for pleasure. We too want to have, we also have disordered pleasure, uh, disordered pleasures that we seek. We want to uh, seek the bad things just to have some good pleasure for ourselves. And it's momentary and it's temporary and it's uh, transient. It's passing away. Uh, Adam and Eve, they had lust of the eyes because they saw that the the fruit was a delight to the eyes. We too have disordered possessions. We want to possess and control things for our own people, places, situations, things. When things are not in our control, we freak out. We have this disordered possessiveness. We want to have things for our own. We're very material people, especially here in the West. We want everything for our own and to control it. We want our lives to be the way that we want it to be. And then uh, Adam and Eve, they had the pride of life. They, they saw this fruit because they had a desire to make one wise. We too have this pride of life. We too think that we know what's best. We can create our own reality. And guess what? God has given us, has given us the remedy for these three uh, ways of the original sin that continues to affect us. This is why Jesus gave us the remedy of, of, of fasting, giving alms, and prayer. Fasting is the remedy to lust of the flesh or disordered pleasure. Instead of uh, using something for its own pleasure, we fast from it. We give it away. And instead of lust of the eyes, disordering possession, the remedy for it is giving alms. So we actually give it away to other people. I don't need it. Other people need it more than I do. I give it away. I'm detached from it. And then the pride of life. I know what's best. 
The remedy for that is prayer. We come to God in humility. You know everything. You are perfect. You're good. You're holy. I don't know everything. And I need to humble myself before you, God. You're a perfect God. And so the remedy against pride is humility, which is found in prayer. And at every single Mass, at every single Eucharist, we battle against this. This is why the church asks us to fast, because it's one. It's a remedy against this disordered pleasure. We fast from everything before Mass because we say, God, I only want you. I hunger for you in the Eucharist only. You alone are sufficient. You alone uh, suffice. You alone are the one that I hunger for. And then what do we do at Mass too? We give alms. We bring our gifts before the altar. Why? To fight against that lust of the eyes, uh, this disordered possession. Uh, I want to hold tight my money because what if I need it at some other point? I, and actually, I want to save up for this super expensive, nice new car and home. And there's nothing wrong with that. But when we some, become so possessive that we neglect the poor and we neglect other people who don't even have uh, clothes or food or anything like that, it's a disordered possession. And what do we do at Mass? We give our gifts away, give it to God. And then at Mass, against the pride of life, we are filled with the Eucharist. We come and the whole Mass is a prayer, which is found in humility. This is what God has given to us. We're not going to murmur and complain. We're going to delight and give thanks to God in this Eucharist. And what happens when we receive the Eucharist? Our eyes are opened. So Adam and Eve, they had these th three disordered desires of lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. And then they ate the fruit and their eyes were opened. Well, Jesus at Mass, we, we fast, we give alms, we pray, and we eat the Eucharist, the, tree of, the fruit of the tree of life. And what, is, what does it say in Luke 24 when the, uh, the, those two disciples on the road to Emmaus eat the Eucharist? Their eyes were opened to grace, to life, to love, and to freedom instead of sin, death, and slavery that happened from the first fall when they ate the forbidden fruit. So the Eucharist, our eyes are opened to grace, life, love, and freedom. And this is why I, I believe, and this is just one interpretation. It's, you know, there's probably a ton of other ones that are totally, uh, totally legit as well. But this is one interpretation that I like about John 6 when Jesus says, He who eats me will never hunger. Why? Because in the Eucharist, we begin to heal, Jesus heals our hearts. And so our hearts are pure and our desires are beginning to conform to his. So we desire what he desires. We are not uh, going back to the desires. We do not hunger for the things of the world. Instead, we hunger for God. And so Jesus in the Eucharist, when he feeds us, he who eats me will never hunger. I will never hunger for the things of the world when I eat Jesus in the Eucharist because he alone is sufficient. He alone suffices. And so the, the Mass, the Eucharist, is the perfect remedy for our brokenness. And this is not magic. It's not like, just come receive the Eucharist, we'll no longer hunger anymore. No, we approach him with faith. And actually the church uses the example of the woman in the Gospels, the woman with a hemorrhage, uh, to show us the faith that we need to come and to, uh, to the faith that we have when we come to Jesus. So the story of the woman of the hemorrhage. And at that time, Jesus is walking through the town and it says that there was a multitude pressing upon him. And the apostles are trying to push people back. And then a woman comes up with faith and touches, touches him and she's healed on the spot. And Jesus says, who touched me? And his apostles are like, what are you talking about? Everyone's touching you. And he said, I felt power leave me. And this woman is healed. And this is how we approach with this woman. Will you come and just touch Jesus and surround him and, and press upon him? Or will you come with this woman who had great faith. If I just touch the tassel, if I touch, if just touch his cloak, he will heal me. Jesus, he wants us to approach him with faith, just like this woman. And so when the world 
does not satisfy, when the world wants you to hunger for more of the world, when it does not satisfy, and it doesn't, come to the Eucharist that he alone suffices, and he alone will actually fill us with good things. So that's our holiness in the Eucharist. What about evangelization? So it's all about bringing people to the Eucharist. Think about the parable of Jesus that he says in Luke 14. It's the parable of the great banquet. Jesus says in this parable, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be full. End quote. And what was it that they were being invited to that Jesus says in this parable that people were going to be going to invite people to? It was a banquet. And what initiated this parable of the great banquet by Jesus? It was a man who said to Jesus, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. In the Eucharist, we eat this eternal bread of Jesus, his body, blood, soul, and divinity, the bread in the kingdom of God, in this great banquet. So if we're here, we go out. We're the ones that have been healed by Jesus in the Eucharist. We go out and we invite people. The Father has prepared a place for you. Come and fill his house for this great banquet, this great feast, this great wedding feast, this celebration. Just as Jesus in the Eucharist, he carries his presence in for us. We become living uh, sacraments. We become living Eucharist. We become, we, we start, we carry the presence of Jesus wherever we go, just as the Eucharist does. We bring heaven to earth just as the Eucharist does. So uh, when I first received the Eucharist, man, ooh, my love changed for people. I'm, I actually was very blessed to be able to write a testimony about what the a testimony for the I Am Here series. I believe it's IamHere.org. It's about Jesus' uh, presence in the Eucharist and all these different testimonies. And man, Jesus radically healed me so much in the Eucharist. And my heart started loving people, loving the poor, no longer objectifying, no longer being possessive or uh, controlling or prideful. And I still battle with all those things, but I try to come with faith in the Eucharist and he heals me. So when I first received the Eucharist, my love for people changed, including in my way for evangelization. It continues to this day. When COVID was shut down, when the churches were shut down because of COVID, uh, I was, you know, watching mass every day on TV and all that good stuff, and that, which is great. And that's all, you know, what I could do. But when the churches opened back up and I received Eucharist again for the first time, whew, the reality of Jesus in the Eucharist, my heart, my eyes were opened again in freedom and life and love to other people. My life was changed again in the Eucharist and it continues every single day. Never want to take the Eucharist for granted. Get to mass, get to adoration, stop into a church, even for two minutes every day if you can. Um, and then our care for the poor. Again, when I first started beginning uh, receiving the Eucharist on a consistent basis, my heart started being transformed for the love of the poor. I just wanted to embrace people on the streets, not caring what other people wanted. I wanted, because why? Because God, because God first gave me as a poor person, as the poor person, he served, he, he first fed me, he first clothed me, he first gave me drink. And serving the poor is God's idea. It's God's idea. God is the first one who serves the poor, which is us. We're the ones that are poor. And yet he feeds us with the bread of eternal life. He gives us the, the true drink of Jesus' blood in the Eucharist. And he clothes us with power from on high and the Holy Spirit. And so our care for the poor flows out from the Eucharist. We care and serve the poor because God first loved and served the poor in us. And then our vocations. Our vocations are transformed by the Eucharist. Think about of a consecrated religious they are a perfect representation of the church. They're this perfect bride who's consecrated to Jesus and they show us what it looks like to be a bride, to fully receive. And then when they see the, the Eucharist, they're, they're transformed into the, into the bride of Christ just as we are uh, called to be. The priesthood. The priests are literally the ones who offer the sacrifice. 
It is a sacred, sacred place. And I wanted to become a priest uh, so bad after I was uh, healed um, of Jesus in the Eucharist. And I wanted everyone to receive this. And I was like, I'm going to be a priest. <laughs> but this is such a sacred place. This is where, because when Jesus instituted this, this is where this, the priesthood even flows from is the Eucharist, first of all. But it's a gift. St. Paul in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, when he talks about the Eucharist, he's, he says that it's something that he received just as I received from the Lord Jesus, I give, I gave it to you. So is it something that the priest receives, not something that they do? To receive, it, they receive it as a gift from Jesus. And when they say, when Jesus says, "Do this in memory of me," he literally said, "Offer this, sacrifice this." So each priest incorporated to Jesus offers the sacrifice of of Jesus for us. And when Jesus says, "Do this in memory of me." That memory of me literally is anamnesis, which means to make present. So the priest offers sacrifice that makes present the reality of Jesus. And it's such a sacred gift that at this Last Supper, when Jesus, uh, it's the most, some of the most intimate prayers of Jesus. Jesus in John 17 is known as the high priestly prayer. Why is it called that? Why is it called the high priestly prayer? Why? Because Jesus is modeling the prayer of the high priest of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant high priest, that when he would enter into the Holy of Holies once a year, he would first pray to God for himself. Then he would pray for his other priests, ministerial priests, like the Levitical priest. And then he would pray for all the lay priests or the kingdom priests. Jesus, in John 17, prays for, the, prays for himself, the unity of him and the Father. And then he prays for the apostles um, because he says that they may be one as we are one. And then he prays for all of us. And he says that they may believe that, and he prays for all of us when he says, I pray for all those who come to believe through their word. And the word that he's talking about is the word from the apostles, the priests. So Jesus, the high priest, the apostles, the bishops are the ministerial priests. And then all of us who are kingdom priests incorporated into that. So this sacred reality of the priesthood is right here in Jesus' heart in John 17. And it's so sacred too that the letter to the Hebrews in John 13 says that we, as the Christian priests, have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. <laughs> have no right to eat. And this is a Jewish author saying this. And so the Jewish author knows that the priesthood of the Old Covenant and the temple and sacrifices were so sacred and holy. You do not mess around with that. And yet he's saying that that is temporary and the the altar the priest the sacrifice that we have in the eucharist is far superior eternally superior that those who even serve that tent have no right to eat this <laughs> because it's that sacred or think about the apostle jude in his letter when he talks he speaks out against the 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 sin of korah's rebellion that's a reference to to the book of numbers in the old covenant and this korah this Korah, Korah's rebellion were people who complained against Moses, Aaron, the Levitical priests, and they said, we're going to set up our own priesthood. In the new covenant, there is one priest, Jesus. There is the, the ministerial priests that are incorporated into him to offer the sacrifice. We do not mess with what Jesus has set up. We do not change it. We do not, do not try to confect the, the Eucharist on our own. We don't try to set up our own priesthood or say that there's no priesthood. Why? Because that's Korah's rebellion that is directly... Uh, spoken against by the Apostle Jude. This is that sacred of a priesthood. And all priests follow the example of Jesus in the Eucharist. Think of St. Paul in First in First Thessalonians. When he talks to the Thessalonian church, he, sa he says that we were ready to share with you the, not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Our own selves. 
St. Paul says, I'll give myself away for the church. And this is exactly what a priest is called to do because he's following the Eucharist. He's following Christ in the Eucharist. Christ in the Eucharist gives himself fully. I give my full self to you. This is my body given for you. And that's what a priest does for the church. This is my body. They imitate Jesus in the Eucharist. So we need to pray for all priests and we need to pray for men to respond to God's calling. We don't have a vocational problem because there's a calling issue. God is calling people. We have a response issue. We need great, courageous men to respond to the call of the priesthood, especially here in Detroit this year as we pray for more priests and so that we would have more priests uh, and more men to take up that call to follow Jesus. And then married life and family life. All of our marriages are a participation in the one marriage of Jesus to his church. Even if you're single, like I remember I would, I was sharing all of this about uh, uh, all of our marriages to our family. And my little brother was like, well, what about me? I'm single. What does that mean for me? Even if you're single, you're still participating in the bride of Christ in the true one marriage with Jesus. So, but all marriages are to participate and are to reflect that one marriage of Jesus to his church the bridegroom to the bride. This is, Jesus says the words of the bridegroom, the perfect faithful bridegroom, when he says, this is my body given for you. That's the words of the bridegroom to his bride. I faithfully give myself fully to you with no reserve. And when Jesus says, I shall not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then later on at the cross, after he drinks that cup of wine, he says, it is consummated. This is the words of the bridegroom, the wedding of God to his people, where precisely he lays his life down. He dies to himself for the church to give life to the church. So we too, as men, die with Christ at ourselves at the cross. And that is when the kingdom of God is brought forth in life for our brides. And that's what um, we are called to, uh, to imitate as Jesus, the perfect bridegroom in the Eucharist. And the Eucharist will transform our marriages. If you're a married couple, hold hands at the time of consecration and at Mass. The Eucharist will transform your marriage. And then children in the domestic church. Jesus says, become like little children. And now I know why. When I see my one-year-old daughter who was baptized uh, when she was a month old and um, baptized and confirmed in the Chaldean church and just like the way that her mom feeds her, teaches her and everything and gave birth to her, Zelly didn't do that on her own. That's not something that she worked for or earned for. She has, Zelly, as a, just her first year of being, uh, just being a baby, has taught us so much about how to be a child of God because she did not earn to be born. She didn't fight her way. Uh, she, didn't, she wasn't the one that gave birth to herself. She's not the one who feeds herself. She simply receives, she receives as a child. Her, her parents, especially her mom, is the one that teaches her. She is the one that gives her food. And same thing with God. When we are reborn in baptism and when we are fed by God in the Eucharist, we are not earning anything. We're not doing anything on our own. God is the one who feeds. God is the one who gives birth. God is the one who fights. God is the one who gives. We just simply receive as children of his. And so as we conclude this talk, and we've been through a ton, talking about the seriousness of Jesus' teaching, the overview of the, what the Eucharist is, and then we saw how it fulfills all of the shadows that were in the Old Covenant, is fulfilled in the reality belongs to Jesus in the Eucharist. And he, he longs to give us uh, himself in the Eucharist as the true bridegroom. He's the one that opens our eyes in holiness. It's He's the one in the Eucharist that fills us for the, the mission of evangelization to uh, to care for the poor. Our vocations are, are transformed. And and I hope this was a fulfilling and a uh, a talk that you can chew on for, for days and weeks and years to come. But a talk on the Eucharist is not going to be the one that convicts our hearts and, fall, and makes us fall in love with Jesus and the Eucharist even more. That is only the Holy Spirit that does that. 
I've heard Father John Ricardo say this, and I do. I fully believe that this is true. Are the crisis in the church about belief in the Eucharist? Like the the statistics are dismal. Like people who even go to church, uh, go to a Catholic church, still don't fully believe that Jesus is there in the Eucharist. Is that it's not just a soul uh, catechesis or teaching issue, which I'm sure that it is. It, there is part of that, but it's also some people know the teaching, but just don't believe. So we have a belief issue. Our human flesh doesn't just simply not does not believe in this reality of the Eucharist. But I have good news. Jesus gives the remedy for this. In John 6, 63, this is right after the Bread of Life discourse when he gives this very tough teaching and people, his disciples just left him. And he says, he says to his apostles, do you want to leave too? Because it's the reality of teaching in the Eucharist. I know it's tough. But this is what Jesus says. It is the spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So he's not talking about his flesh that's no, no avail because he just said in this entire passage that it's going to be his flesh that gives life to the entire world. He's talking about our human flesh apart from divine grace. So he is saying that it is the spirit that gives life. So it is the Holy Spirit that will teach us these heavenly realities, these the, this, this amazing gift of the Eucharist. It'll be the Holy Spirit that shows us, teaches us, and gives us this faith and belief that we need to come to the Eucharist in faith, knowing that it is Jesus' words that he speaks to us, our spirit and life, and he does not lie. He gives us full truth, and that truth is found in the reality of the Eucharist. And so, would like to end this time together to pray for the Holy Spirit to convict us, to move us, to the one to give life to us. So let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Father, we thank you. We praise you for the gift of eternal life. We thank you, Father, for the gift of salvation. We thank you, Father, that your Son, Jesus, fulfills all things in the Eucharist. We thank you, Jesus, how you completely give yourself to us in the Eucharist, that you speak to us that are things that are spirit and life. Holy Spirit, come now. Come, Holy Spirit. You are the one who reveals, convicts, shows the reality of Jesus in the Eucharist. You are the one who changes our hearts. You are the one who gives faith. I ask for the spirit of faith to come upon all of us, transform our minds, our passions, our desires. Holy Spirit, give us new insights, new realities into the into the reality of the Eucharist. Holy Spirit, come now. Fill us, mind, body, soul, and spirit. Fill us head to toe, Holy Spirit. So let us fall in love in this Eucharistic revival, that it would start here, and for each of us to fall in love with Jesus in the Eucharist, that there truly would be a Eucharistic revival, that we would eat, drink, and behold the face of God like never before, that we would have intimate communion with Jesus in the Eucharist and Mass and adoration and our evangelization, our care for the poor, our marriages, our priests, our religious sisters, and our religious brothers would be transformed by the power of the Eucharist, that the church would be set aflame with the heart of God in the Eucharist. Jesus, we thank you for the, your heartbeat in the Eucharist. Then when we hear the body of Christ and we say amen, we're saying amen to the reality of the heart of God that is given to us to be filling the, the body of Christ like never before with flames of fire to fill us, to consume us, that our eyes, our passions, our desires would be conformed to you, Jesus, and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven and that we would worship in spirit and truth and that people would see the Eucharistic presence in us as we see the Eucharistic presence in you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, we give you all of these things. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen.